Welcome to the Perigo Podcast. This is Jared Pitney, and today I am joined by Stan Jones, who is the founder and operator of the Stan Jones Mallard Lodge in Clover Bend. Stan, thanks so much for coming on today. Thank you, Jared, for having me. Glad to be here. How's the coffee? Really good. Really good. I'm a kind of a two cup in the morning and not much in the afternoon, but this will get me going again. Yeah, I noticed you're a uh, creamer, creamer kind of guy. Yeah, I am. I, I, I wished I wouldn't. I wished I could drink it black, but at 22, after I got out of college, my dad was on the porch, and uh, I had never had a cup of coffee, never tasted of it in my life. And he said, son, won't you won't you try a cup of coffee? And I said, no, nah, I don't want none, Dad. And I kind of always thought, if you're ever going to pick up a habit, pick up a good habit. <laughs> and, you know, I never, never had a cigarette in my mouth, never, just didn't, don't drink, never done those things. If you're going to pick up a habit, pick up a good one. But he said, well, just taste of mine. And uh, he had cream and sugar in it, and uh, it tasted pretty good. It really, and so my whole, life, with it. my whole life, every cup I've had, I put a little cream and sugar in it. Right on. Well, hey, hey if, it ain't, if it ain't broke, hey, bro, right? don't fix it. That's exactly right. So uh, what was it? A few weeks ago, we took our staff out to your lodge. I'd heard of it. Um, Heard great things about it, just had never used it. A few weeks ago, we got there, and honestly, I was blown away uh, by the beauty of it. Uh, that's what I did not expect. I thought it was just going to be some rooms out in the middle of nowhere, maybe a couple trees, maybe a little pond or whatever, but it was absolutely gorgeous. The hospitality was great. Every little detail. Um, I was telling our staff, I was like, this stuff right here, I promise you, even the stuff you're not even noticing, like has taken a lot of work and a lot of thought, a lot of intentionality. And so we're enjoying it. And uh, just to give the listener a little background of why I wanted you to come on, we're sitting there one morning, our staff, and we're having breakfast, which was provided by Michael Tolson, which owns Chow here downtown, just right down the street from us. Uh, fantastic breakfast. And all of a sudden, this, uh, this farmer walks through the doors to get some coffee, which we had been enjoying as well. Mm. And uh, that was you. And you just began to talk to us and tell us a little bit about your story and how the lodge got started. And honestly, I was so uh, I was so blown away by your story. I was touched by your 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 courage to be vulnerable with us. Um, and uh, I just wanted you to come on. I, re- I think I, I reached out to you right after, you know, our breakfast or whatever and said, hey, would you please come on? And I appreciate you making time. I'm wondering if maybe you could just recount some of that story to tell those listening how the lodge got started. Because uh, actually, even before you tell that, I mean, people from all over the world are coming to this thing, right? Yes. all Every year, all 50 states. And uh, we've had people from Germany, groups, groups like five engineers from Mercedes-Benz, so groups from Germany, from Quebec, from London, from Vancouver, Pakistan, uh, a 30-year-old Muslim girl who had never duck hunted before. Um, she had to know which way the east was because she probably kneeled down mm-hmm. five times a day, as they do. Mm. Uh, India, uh, Dubai, Mexico, it, It's Arkansas, has. Uh, they draw people from all over the world to duck hunting. Duck hunting is really, it's the destination for the world for duck hunting is Arkansas. That's wild. And you've had, uh, I think like I, if I'm remembering correctly, like you've had certain politicians who have come in for this governors. Uh, I don't know if I heard this right, but, um, someone I mentioned like a member from SEAL team six, even, I mean, yes, all kinds of people. Yes. All kinds of people. 
I mean, SEAL Team Six is. Um, I, lo- I love our military, and I'm not a defund the police. I'm fund the police guy. Mm-hmm. I love our military, and so every year uh, I got started probably four years ago. Uh, they called me and uh, told me who they was and said that their SEAL Team Six had requested that they come and hunt at the. Stan Jones Mallard Lodge. How are they hearing about the lodge? I, I don't know. They they hear it from somebody that they know. I've never advertised in my whole life. I've never newspaper or magazines or stuff like that. I've never really. It's just been word of mouth, and you know, it's kind of like a restaurant. If you go buy a parking lot of restaurant and the parking lot is full, probably good food. Mm-hmm. If you go mm-hmm. by the parking lot mm-hmm. and there's not anybody there, probably not very good food. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it, if it's good duck hunting. They tell people, and I don't have to advertise. They'll do it for me. I have never been duck hunting in my life. No, me neither. If I came out to the Stan Jones Mallard Lodge, would I be able to kill a duck? You know, you just need to know how to shoot a shotgun. You just, I yeah, don't see. I, that's the problem because I don't. I don't <laughs> think I know how to shoot a shotgun. You, you oh. really need to be. We don't. You know, it's too dangerous to take people that's not good with guns. And so, you know, when fathers bring their kids, I want their kids to have been to a skeet range, a trap range. I want their father to have spent some time with them. And, you know, I don't want someone else to get hurt over, you know, it's not a training session. So you need to be, know what you're doing with a gun before you come. Okay, so um, I'm going to tell you the story that I told myself about how the lodge got started. This is what this is. I'm letting you into my mind a little bit. So I can't help, but I've always people watched, um, my wife and I were out eating somewhere the other day. We were at Dairy Queen, actually. Oh. And we were there. We saw this family come in. And I was like, I bet that he does this. And I bet that's his grandma and this or that. And I was like, what do you think? And she's like, I don't know, Jared. But I just do this thing. Right? I kind of build up a story. So what I told myself was when I went to the Stan Jones Mallard Lodge, I was like, okay, this guy grew up as a farmer. Um, and his this land had always been in his family forever. He inherited the land. Uh, then he thought, you know what, I'm just, I like to duck hunt, so I'm going to go ahead and create this lodge. He probably paid uh, professionals to build the place. He paid the professionals to come landscape the place, and then it just kind of took off. That was the story I told myself, which was wrong, and I found that out yes. after you came in and talked. So why don't you tell us the real story of how the lodge actually got started? Well, my dad has been dead since maybe 2000. But uh, he probably, uh, I guess I was probably six or seven, probably seven, and uh, had a little 410, and my dad duck hunted with some grown, other grown men, and he took me with him. He was a good dad, and uh, I just fell in love with duck hunting. I just fell in love with watching them cup, watching them circle, with calling with a duck collar, and uh, it's, it's so many unforgettable moments in uh, the way that they, they come in. You saw that big mount up on the wall of all those ducks. And so I just fell in love with it at seven and really got to where I was good on a duck collar. And so duck hunted and deer hunted. In a small place like Cloverbend, there's not much to do. You know, you either play basketball, um, duck hunt or deer hunt, that's about it. It's not much out there. But that's the beauty of out there is because there's, you know, you don't have stoplights. You don't have a line of traffic at 430 after work. And it, there's a lot of good things about being out there. 
But anyway, I duck hunted, and in the ninth grade, I transferred to Walnut Ridge so I could play football. And whenever I got to Walnut Ridge, transferred, the the high school football coach had heard about me duck hunting and, and was anxious to talk to me, and he asked if I could take him and the superintendent, Mr. Ellis, duck hunting Saturday morning. And I told him, yeah, yeah, I can. And he said, well, do you think we'll get in? And I said, yeah, I usually get my limit when I go. So, yeah, we will. So we went Saturday morning, and we killed a full limit. And so I, I guess it was Sunday afternoon he called back. He said, listen, uh, we'd like to go again Tuesday morning. <laughs> and I said, Coach, I, I got school. I can't. He said, well, listen, he said, it'll be all right. We won't, <laughs> we won't be gone very long. And so we went Tuesday morning, and uh, – uh, killer limit again, and the superintendent, Mr. Ellis, went to my teacher and said, now Stanley was helping me today, and anything he missed, I aim for him to make it up. That's exactly, oh. I aim for I him to like make that. it up. Well, pun there. And, and he said, uh, he said, but I made good grades. I made really good grades, and it wasn't for me to miss it. Well, it turned out that pretty well every Tuesday that duck season was in, Ninth grade, tenth grade, eleventh grade, and twelfth grade, I took them duck hunting. So wow. we 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 did that a lot. We had a lot of good times, and but I studied and made good grades. And so to miss a couple hours of a morning, it wasn't wasn't a big deal. So I got a question about uh, being a duck guide. I just as again, as I've never been, I just assumed that you just kind of have your spot that you go to, and you just call the ducks. Like, is it more than that? Or is that pretty much what it is? And no, just- no, it, it's a whole lot more than that, and there's a lot more that you put into that. Actually, at my my place, I've got 52 different places to hunt. Wow. So we hunt from green timber to green timber reservoirs to cypress sloughs to bows to rice fields to flooded green timber. We hunt, and when the river is flooded, we have a lot of backwater in woods that we hunt, so Jeez. We've got a lot of different. And that's all right there in that area. Yes, and and we we no we hunt a a variety. Just would not want to hunt the same scenario, fifty or sixty. So how do you pick which scenario? All of that ground that um, I'm hunting on is ground that I have bought since. I mean, I knew all this ground since I was a kid, and um, uh, let me just tell you that I grew up on the farm. And my dad worked in the factory, and he had about maybe 40 acres. And so I kind of, in you know, junior high, grade school, had driven a little Ford tractor, a little break and plow, uh, had always picked cotton every fall, picked cotton, and every spring chopped cotton. I mean, we had to work. Uh, my dad had probably two or three cattle that we milked, Jersey cows, and had a few hogs that they would you know, keep so they could slaughter and keep meat for the family. So we basically lived on the farm, and everything we did was there. Uh, Dad worked at a place called Vulcan, which was a factory, so I didn't grow up really having anything. We was as poor as poor could be when I was growing up. And so that was my goal is to get a college degree and not have to work on a farm again Mm -hmm. because it's hard work. It's really long hours and hard work. And so as I grew up, uh, the different areas that I learned to hunt, 
you know, I just thought I'd give anything one of these days if I could buy 40 acres or something and take my kids to these places. And as it turned out, you know, I've, I've bought nearly seven or 8,000 acres. I've bought every one of the places that was good duck and deer hunting and that is part of my lodge and my club and part of what I so it's incredible. Not an acre was given to me, and I, I just think sometimes God opens doors. And I never ever intended to be a farmer, never. But so what did you plan? Like when you came out of high school, what were you like? This is what I'm gonna do with my life. What did you think you were gonna do? Well, I went to Rhodes College right out of high school on an academic scholarship. Okay. And so. I probably intended to be probably a doctor or sergeant or something. Uh, I. I but then after I went over there one year, I missed playing football, and so I came back to Arkansas State and took my football scholarship. Oh, so you played football at ASU? ASU. I didn't know that. What position? Linebacker. Linebacker. Yeah. What did football teach you? Well, we we won a national championship. So at Arkansas State? At oh. Arkansas State. So Come ter- on. Terry Bradshaw played at Louisiana Tech. Okay. When I was like a freshman, he was a senior. So – Long time ago, most people hardly. This was what year? Nineteen seventy. Nineteen seventy. Most people don't. Bradshaw. Yeah, don't remember. But yeah, he was when I was a freshman. He was a, uh, he was a a senior. Stan, you are truly a man's man. You are. You you grew up on the man in the world. Seriously, you grew up on the farm. You're showing Navy SEALs how to hunt ducks, (laughs) and you were a linebacker that won a national championship in collegiate football. That's. You're everything well, I want to be absolutely. when I grow up. <laughs> absolutely. Well, the Navy SEALs, the SEAL Team 6. It's not Navy SEALs. It's SEAL Team 6. Okay. Yeah, which yes. is a big difference. Big yeah. difference. And uh, SEAL Team 6 are the ones responsible for taking out uh, – Bin Laden. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, and the Delta Force, which they come there also. And SEAL Team 6, that, when that group comes, that's probably one of my favorite groups of it, all of them put together. They – these guys are so highly skilled and trained, and I don't even know who's coming till the morning they come. I mean, it's they don't want anyone in the world to know where they're at. They, uh, I have no idea who's the six or the eight of them that's coming. And half the time, it'll be half SEAL Team 6, half Delta Force. And SEAL Team 6, a Navy SEAL is a big, big deal to go through and become a Navy SEAL. That's a big deal. Uh, yeah. But out of... A thousand Navy SEALs, only one will be chosen SEAL Team 6. Delta Force, to be a Delta Force, they take the Green Beret. That's the Army branch. So a thousand Green Beret, and Green Beret is a big deal. Yeah. But to become a Delta Force, only one Green Beret out of a thousand. So it's it's beyond, beyond. What do you do? You get into conversations with these guys? Extremely close and stay in touch. And the guy that captured Saddam Hussein dug him out of the hole in the ground. We speak almost every week. That's insane. Wow. Two of the people that was on that, uh, Captain Phillips, that made actual kill shots. Two of them that made actual kill shots. It's been to the lodge. Wow. So what have you? Um... And and probably three or four of them that was on the Bin Laden raid when the helicopter crashed. They've been there, and we talk. Have you noticed a difference in these people versus just your everyday, ordinary Joe? Or like if you were just looking at them and talking to them, you'd be like, you wouldn't tell the difference between them and someone you ran to at Walmart. Or is it like, no, there's a difference in these people. The connector uh, that 
that called me and set this up and said, my guys want to come. He said, you'll know me as the connector. And he said, uh, he said, you, well, I, I told him, I said, listen, there's been a couple of four-star generals that's been to my lodge, three-star and four-star, and I could call them and they'd be glad. He said, listen, Stan, don't do that. He said, these guys have never seen a general. He said, that's not part of what they do. These guys are totally separated from everybody else. And no, and, and he said, you would not recognize them. These are not who you think they are. These guys could walk through the Memphis airport or Minneapolis. And he said, you couldn't pick them out from anybody else. He said, some will have beards. Some will have long hair and a ponytail. Some will have a bandana. He said, these just look like regular, everyday people. But they're way, way, way much more than that when you see what they do and when you talk to them. Oh, it's, 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 it is. It is incredible. To me, more incredible than any country music star, more incredible than any pro football, pro baseball player I've had, much more. These, these are guys that can hang upside down from the ceiling and be blindfolded and put a gun together that their hands are just barely touching from memory. They can put a AR-15 or AK-47 together hanging from a ceiling upside down. These are guys that swim two miles underwater at nighttime and complete a mission. These are guys that do things that, that normal people like us <laughs> don't ever think about. They're incredible. Uh, yeah, oh. they are incredible. I um, So let's get back with the story here. So just to recap, in case anybody's missed it, um, you, let's see, uh, we're taking your administration, school administration, duck hunting throughout the week, starting in ninth grade, did that, uh, all the way up until you graduated from there, you got an academic scholarship to Rhodes, which is like the That's Ivy impressive. League school here in the South. Uh, then you're like, you know what? I want to play football. So you just like, I'm going to go play linebacker and win a national championship in 1970 against Terry Bradshaw. No big deal. Now Terry Bradshaw had left whenever my, he was a fr- for, he was four year, three years ahead of me. Okay. So well, he had still left. Still the national championship, though. I, I just told you, it was along that era. So okay. it's been yep. a long time ago. Yep, but you got the ring. I see the yeah, ring. It's not the ring. What are you going to college for? Did you say you wanted to be a doctor originally? But uh, then originally, what did you get a probably. In? Probably because I needed to do something to get out of farming and get out of the little area that I lived in. And, and so then when I came back to uh, Arkansas State, I just did accounting and finance and, and ended up doing a business degree. And what did you think you would do with that? Go to law school. Okay. So you're planning to go to law school. Did you go to law school? I took a real good job in Little Rock and uh, uh, worked down there six months. And then this farming opportunity came along for me to be able to get into farming. And I just... um, What do you mean by the opportunity? Like someone said, here's some land we want to rent out to you? A guy that I knew had been farming like about seven, 800 acres, and that was a lot of ground, and he had some equipment, and he basically said, I've been wanting to talk to you. I'd, I'd like to sell you my equipment and rent you my ground, and you can farm my ground. And I just began to figure, and uh, I could make more in six months farming than I could working at the bank all year. So if I farmed for six months, I could hunt for six months. Ah. So that was intriguing to me. It, it allowed me to do the things I wanted to do like that. And at that time, you could really, farming was pretty good. Okay, so you come back to Clover Bend. Yes. You're starting to farm. Have yes. You, are you married at that point? No. Okay. 
So uh, t- pick me up in there. You start farming. I guess you go back to hunting. You're probably still serving as a guide just whenever you can. Well, up up until that time, I had just, in college, I had guided some people that I knew. And during duck season, we would go to the St. Francis River Bottoms or we would go to Rainy Break or Dave Donaldson. I had places that I could go and I could take three or four guys and we could, you know, kill some ducks. And so I, I've done that for a long time, probably since I was in the ninth grade. And uh, then after I got out of college and started farming, the first little bit of ground that I farmed was just ground that I rented. And then eventually that farm, he decided to sell it and I bought it. And then just kind of started buying land around the community of Clover Bend. There were a lot of older people and some of those older people wanted to sell their ground, and so, you know, I was young, and and I was uh, able to borrow the money to buy the ground, and most of the ground that I was attracted to was either duck hunting or deer hunting, and then came in and precision leveled it, and have spent my entire life, 50 years of of farming and uh, leveling the ground and growing crops and hunting. So... You're doing that. Things are going as planned. You get married. You have two, three kids? Three. Three Three. kids. And this is the part of the story I know it's not easy for you to tell, but it's one that struck me, and and you really can't have the the lodge apart from this story. You're going along. Things are going well, but the tragedy hits. Now, I had been uh, my wife, Kathy. We got married in 1979. And our first kid was born later in 80 and then 82 and then 84. So we had three kids pretty quick. Uh, She was from Wichita, Kansas. And, uh, you know, we just rock and rolling along. And uh, and she just, we were just like most all the other families. You know, she took care of the kids and the garden and the house. And I went out and worked long hours and, you know, was buying land, leveling land. And in the wintertime, we would duck hunt and, she would cook for so she was a big part of my early beginnings of kind of running a commercial lodge, so to speak. And I, I bought a little small lodge that like six or eight people could stay in. So for a while we did that. But in nineteen ninety four, she got killed in a car wreck and um, got killed instantly. And uh, when she did. And, 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 and it's hard for me to talk. It's hard for me. So if I, you know, you see a little something, I can't help it. But yeah. anyway, she uh, uh, was killed instantly. And uh, my 12-year-old, our 12-year-old son was in the vehicle with her. Mm-hmm. And it hurt him, but it didn't, it, not too bad. He got over it. And then our other two children, well, Lindsay was uh, nine and uh, uh, nine or 10. Blake was 11 and Britt was 12. So they was probably 9, 11, and 12, so three young kids. And uh, all of a sudden, I'm raising three kids by myself. And so a lot of my hunters uh, didn't want me to get out. They said, listen, we we know things will be different, but we want to keep hunting. And so I kept on and got a couple other people to do the cooking and help with the lodge, and and I continued to to do that. And then in... uh, uh, 2004, 10 years after 94, Kathy got killed in 94, 
2004, 10 years later, is, is when my son Blake died of a drug overdose. Mm-hmm. And, and he was the one, was he the one with her? Or? No, he was the middle child. He was the middle child. And it, but, you know, all three of my kids saw their mother laying dead on the highway. And that forever damages uh, people. It just, there's no, no getting over it real quick. But we did the best we could do. We went to counseling and, you know, did the best we could do. But, mm-hmm. and we were doing pretty good until 10 years after that, then Blake died of a drug overdose. And then when he died, it, it's like it knocked us back down again. And uh, so from 2004 till about 2010, I didn't hunt. I didn't do anything. I just, you just can't sit in a deer stand. You just think and think and think and think. And it, it's, it's, it, it, you, you know, you don't have any fun in anything you do. Kind of the fun was taken out of life. And really, really, you have to go just as deep down in yourself as far as you can to make it. It's a hard thing to get yourself through it, let alone your kids and so but we did you know you kind of kind of come to me uh you you got two choices you can just lay down and die or you can get up and go on and I chose to get up and go on do the best you can do for your family and I mean you got two choices lay down die or get up and go on that's your choices do one or the other is that a choice that you had to make you feel like remake every day or is it like did you just come to a place where you're like oh there's my choices I'm gonna make it that's it I'm going on well it's hard on it was hard on me because every time the kids hurt it hurt me It, it, it I had to filter everything and it's it was hard on all of us it was hard on all of us and you know, uh, kids are doing well. They're grown now, but it was just a hard time to go through. And you know, kind of heading down this road with that. Well, that's one of the reasons that you know I ended up doing my lodge, which you you probably don't know. I might not have said anything to you, but I just all of a sudden felt compelled after me not hunting from 2004 till 2010 or 11. I felt really compelled to build my lodge. People would come up and say, well, I bet you this is your dream. You thought about doing this for a long time. No, no, I really didn't. Once that I kind of felt compelled, uh, I just did it. And uh, um, when you say you did it, like you drew up the plans. Yes. For like the, the actual, not like the, just the business plan, but like the, well, the, the architecture. landscaping, everything. Yeah, the landscaping. I was there every day and, and, and had a... Uh, uh, a, a man from Paragool, Keith White. You may know him, uh-huh. White Construction. Yep, yep. Keith was, he built the lodge, he built the house, and it was just fabulous that to work with him and how we worked together. And uh, uh, every day we would talk. And if we need to make any adjustments, we did. Yeah, and even the, um, like, just the, the, the attention to detail was what's incredible to me. Like, we're eating at one of the tables, and it was, uh, was a red oak or uh, redwood. Redwood, Redwood from t- California. Yeah. yeah, from California. It's like, you see this knot in this table over there across the room, there's a knot. Yes. And the exact same spot of that table. And you, I mean, Well, that was, you know, I, I have been hunting for a long, long time, and I built that really for my hunters to come and to enjoy. And I was just going to build it big enough for 10 people. And people like FedEx and Nucor and Stevens Inc. and Bank of Oklahoma had a lot of 
Walmart comes every year. I had a lot of corporate people that said, look, when we come, we want to bring 25 or 30. We, we need more than 10. So I can, I can sleep 35. And so that's how big I built it. And uh, yeah, everything is so well done. The landscape is what just blew me away, though. Like, and Uh and then it's, I don't know if I've, I mean, it's people, I mean, there's no way I can do it justice. You're just going to have to go, we'll put some pictures. You just have to go look at the pictures and and really just need to go out there and look at it. That's the pictures when you probably want to do it justice. But like, even the attention to the, uh, the trees, like you talked to me about. You took out the perfect trees? Yeah, that was a kind of a forest there behind the lodge. And uh, I had to thin it in order to build the, the waterfall and the fountain and the amphitheater and all the gardens. And so I just, the perf- I, I left the imperfect trees, like the trees that were crooked, the trees that had a double trunk, the trees that had three trunks, uh, Hackberry, which has got like a bunch of warts on them, black cherry. Uh, I have a sycamore that has a big split open heart. A horticulturalist wouldn't have kept the trees that I kept. They would have said, these are not good trees. You need to keep your real pretty big trunks and keep those. They're probably healthy and going to live longer. But the other ones had more character, and I just I, I, I love the character of, of something that's not just perfect. And when you put where does them, that come from? I don't know. I don't know. It's kind of like that amphitheater with all those twisted seats. I mean, I had they didn't build it like I saw, and and the fountain they tore it down twice. The third time they kept the fountain because it wasn't what I could see, and and we kept the back patio. We tore it down once. And, and read because read. it wasn't what you it could wasn't see in your what head. I could see and and when I would tell them and show them you know it wasn't what I wanted and it was um, a lot of trial and error to get there to where that okay this is what I'm looking for I mean you had to take somewhat of a uh, I don't know your financial situation but it would seem like to me a little bit of a financial risk and like when you're tearing down things, building it back up, tearing down, build back up, that's that's not cheap. I mean, oh. that costs money. That's I labor. didn't think that's... about it. I really didn't think. I didn't have the money, but I didn't think about it because I had to live with it for the next 20 or 30 years. And I, I'm not going to do something and it not be right. So whatever it took to get it right, that's what we're going to do because I'm going to be here the next 20 or 30 years. So <laughs> I, I didn't even yeah. didn't even think about that. I wanted it to be right. Did you get that from your dad? This, this. You know, my dad never, never had a CD, was very poor, worked in a factory, but the best thing that my dad gave me is, this is right, this is wrong. You can do this, you cannot do this. This is good and this is bad. That's what my dad gave me. The only, only thing he had to give me is, is a good moral compass. Yeah, so that's very that's important, even more important now than in the culture we live in than never before. Yes, it is. And it seems like that's what uh, – that definitely played into this. You're looking at something, and you're like, this is the right way of doing it? No. And we haven't got there yet, so there's no middle ground. There's no, like, there hey, let's settle. We'll just no, settle. I didn't have anybody to bounce off of it. It's just the way that I could see it, and that's what I wanted, and – Keith was willing to, if that's what you want, that's what we're going to do. And so if I was going to build something else, I would get Keith White to do it. He was, it was, he was that great of a contractor to 
helped me do my life. Is he still building? He does. He builds residential houses. Yeah, he he built a a couple houses. Actually, my parents lived in when I was growing up. Um, So did immediately everything take off as soon as you opened the doors? You know, I had been hunting a long time, and and I had a lot of contacts. And whenever they found out that I was going to – I had not been hunting for 10 years. And whenever I got back in it again, uh, you know, it got booked up really pretty quick. Hmm. I wouldn't say the very first year that I opened that it was booked up, but I'll, ever since then, it has been. Mm-hmm. How do you think, because um, I know you told me the first time we met, talking, you know, going back to whenever you lost your wife and your son, that, that, that the lodge probably wouldn't be what it is apart from there. I'm curious, just in general, not just how has the lodge changed, but how do you think that that – those deaths changed you because they changed you. They do. They do. They do. It it uh, it takes any arrogance. Uh, it brings humility, and uh, you know you can play college football and do a lot of things and 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 do really good. But you talk about humbling. It does. It does. And just uh, I, I just get up every day, do the best I can do. And hopefully during the day I help somebody some way or another. And to the end of the day, I know I've done the best I can do. And I can uh, go to bed and go to sleep. And, you know, when I, when I mentioned compelled a while ago, I, I didn't know what compelled me or how I was compelled. But I just, something inside me, probably in 30 minutes, made me decide I'm going to build this lodge. And it just kept on getting stronger. And so finally I just kind of... I'm, I'm going to do this. And I, if I saw 10 people, and which I didn't, but if I had talked to 10 or 12 people, every one of them said, don't do this, don't build out there. In fact, there's been people come, and I, I remember the some tour buses from New York or somewhere up there, and they want this one little 70, 80-year-old woman. She said, honey, why, why would you build something like this out here in this little old area like this? And, and you know, you don't build a hunting lodge in the middle of Memphis. You know, you don't, or you don't build a hunting lodge in the middle of New York. It needs to be in an area like that. So those people that come from all over, they come to be in a place mm-hmm. where they're away from motels totally. and concrete That's why we went there. and big buildings. They don't want to be around all of that. And, you know, the I just, I, I'm probably, probably the only lodge in the United States that doesn't have a bar. But from day one, there was just things that, uh, you know, I know a lot of people drink and whatever they want to do, that's them. But I'm not having a, a bar at my lodge. I'm not promoting. I don't sell it. I don't make any money. I don't want to be. If someone brings, you know, something to drink, that's fine. That's I'm not going to try to run their life or anything. And out of all these years, there's only been one person that I told him, you're not going to be able to hunt in the morning is you've had too much to drink. Mm. So I, I have a couple other rules. I don't have any dogs in my hunting lodge. You know, it's it. there's kennels and places outside for dogs, certainly not in these bedrooms or anything like that. And I don't allow any cigarettes or vaping or anything like that. I don't allow that in my lodge. If you want to smoke, that's fine. You just need to go outside. And I try to, you know, with covid and you know i seal the doors we 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 sanitize we do everything that we can do to 
for CDC and the state health to be the way that we're supposed to be with them, the social distancing and stuff. And so, you know, we've tried to run it where people come. And to me, it's the experience that I want. I want it to be the cleanest room you've ever been in, the nicest sheets, the best food, Mm -hmm. uh, the good socializing and environment, Mm -hmm. the experience of coming and getting an authentic Arkansas duck hunt the way I duck hunted 60 years ago. That's what I want people. I don't, it's not about coming here and getting drunk. It's not about coming here and laying up the next morning and not going hunting. I want to offer you the best experience hunting that you can go anywhere and get. Stan, is, is Arkansas the best place to duck hunt? It is. Um, it really is? By far. By far. And the reason for that is, is all of these rivers in the United States, a lot of them funnel right here into Black River, all these rivers funnel into White River, then the Arkansas River. So if you look at the veins of many states, the ducks fly these veins. The ducks fly these river flyways like the Cache River, mm-hmm. Black River, uh, Foshi. All these rivers come in, and the ducks, that's why we have a, we're a focal point for ducks to come. And most of our ducks come from the Saskatchewan, Saskatoon pothole area and they that's why they banded ducks a long time ago is to keep up with the migration and uh, so yes arkansas is the duck hunting capital of the world talk to me about uh the significance you think that it's been on your life being rooted in the same area because like i'm hearing you um there's something to me at least romantic about the idea of like you're sitting there and you're naming all these trees on your property by name I wonder how many people from my generation could even walk out and name an oak tree. You know, they don't even, they just know there's a tree. There are several kinds of oak trees. <laughs> yeah, right. It's not just an oak tree. Right. And it's like, but you know yeah. your land. I do. Like, you know these trees. Like, there just seems like there's a there's a sacredness to that, or a, I don't know what it is, but I'm curious. Can you speak to that at all about just... I can tell you exactly how I got there. Whenever I was 13, 14, and 15, my mom and dad had an Ashley wood stove that burnt wood. So every year we had to go to the woods and cut trees. And my dad taught me the trees that we need to cut that will burn in his Ashley wood stove. Um, there, there are some trees that, that will you can split, and like an elm tree, you cannot, I don't care who you are, how big you are, you cut an elm tree the size of a pie plate, you can't split it. Wow. It, you you, you take I've a seen an elm tree. well. It, it's a really hard hard wood, and the only thing with the elm tree is you burn it as a night log, and that's it. But a hackberry and oak and locust and uh, uh, there's a lot of trees that will burn, and those are the trees that you cut and split. So my dad taught me which trees were good for that and which wasn't, mm. and so that's where I got my. Uh, absolutely where I got my knowledge of trees. <laughs> well, that'll do it. Um, I'm curious when you think about your life, how old are you now? 71. 71. As you look back on your life, and by the way, here's a little encouragement for you. We've talked about this several times. Uh, some say there's a there's a, a mentor, kind of a, a spiritual director that we admire a lot, author who says that the best years of your life are your 70s. So be excited. Um, but looking back on your life at 71, what do you think are some of the, the biggest lessons 
that you have learned, maybe even things that you would have uh, told your younger self that maybe he didn't know, but now you know that just the reason I ask that is because I would think whatever lessons you've learned or lessons that could possibly be applied even to my own life or the life of listeners. So is there anything that comes to your mind? Yeah, uh, <laughs> a lot of things. And, you know, by the time you're this age, you know, you should have uh, have learned a lot of things. And, you know, uh, when you become 70, you've had about all the nonsense that you want. I, I don't I don't need to be involved with nonsense anymore. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, I, I know that don't ever say my kid won't do this. You want to more get it out of your mouth, and your kid will do it. And uh, I, I think being good to people, I, I think if you do something good for people, someone every day, that it's just we're just here for a little while. And, you know, I think if you miss that boat, you've really missed it. You, you know, if you miss that boat going to heaven, all this other, you know, it, it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. So I think every day we can find someone that we can do something good for mm-hmm. in one way or the other. And that's how on my list is to, to find someone that I can do something for every day. Mm-hmm. Hopefully it's a different person, but some way I can do something that helps that person. Do you think that helped you at all? even through the hard times? Because I think that it's easy. I was just talking with a, a woman earlier before you came on about how easy it is whenever things are difficult, especially to just kind of clam up and just be like, you know what? Like everybody needs to serve me in this season and I'm just going to kind of focus on me and my own life. But do you feel like at all by serving others that it even helps you in the difficult seasons? Have you found that to be true of your life or have you found that when you're going through the valleys and the hardships that you do have to pull back on some of that? I, I think your greatest lessons are learned in the valleys. Like I, I know I hunted in Colorado and some places a lot of years, and up on the mountaintops, on the high, high mountaintops, that's not where the elk, when, when it gets three and four foot of snow, those elk will go down to the valley. That's where your rich, rich soil is. That's where your food's going to be, not on the high mountaintops. There's not anything but rocks mm. and peaks so really your greatest lessons are learned in the valley, and that's where your rich, fertile soil, and that's where you walk whenever you, I think you learn the most and get wow. the most. And, that's good. And through the greatest tragedies, I mean, you know, through those kind of things, help us to become. That's your phone right there. Well, I had it on. Yeah, that's good. I put it on the floor. I thought I could. <laughs> thought I could go through it. Yeah, no. A few minutes without a phone call. Oh no, you're too popular but for that, man. I, I think that we, the lessons we learn when we're walking in the valley are uh, stay with you forever, and that's what makes you the person that you are. Yeah, that's what the scripture teaches for yeah. those who actually believe the Bible, and it seems to be even just true of people's experiences. You know, we've had a lot of different folks on over the last year and a half on this podcast and there's something about it. Like none of us want to ask for suffering. I get that. I'm not asking for suffering. I'm not looking for suffering, but there's something about it where it really does build character. You talked about humility. That's character. That's what Mm -hmm. you're talking about. Um, It right sizes us. It helps us to just get a different perspective. It helps us to go deeper. Um, like and you said, I think David Brooks, he's, I think he's a writer for the New York Times. He talks about how suffering, it carves out a bottom 
within your soul, so to speak. And then you get to the bottom and you realize it goes even deeper. And then you get to the bottom of that like basement, so to speak. And then it goes even deeper. And, um, man, there's just something that, and that's what I think of when I think of you, Stan, like, you know, you were saying, well, I go, Hey, I apologize. I'll start crying, whatever else. But it's like, and it, like, it just, to me, it seems like your heart works. Like your heart, like it's not made of stone. Like well, it's sometimes not, this is tender stuff that I talk about. Yes. And it's, it's before this ever happened, I, I probably had hardly ever cried. Just, just didn't. But after my wife and uh, my son being, you know, both of them dying, uh, many, many days I cried several times a day. Because yeah. it's hard, it's a something that's hard to go through, um, but you know the thing you was talking about character. I, I think reputation. You can build a reputation in one or two minutes. You can do something, and you can build a reputation in five minutes. Character is something to twenty twenty five years. It, you just you don't buy character, and you don't. It, it's a lot of lot that you put into it, and it's something that you want to protect and to. To get, and just like friends, friends, I value my friends. I have mm-hmm. a value on friendship, and you don't tell me about that. Like, what do you? How do you value your friend? I mean, I agree, friendships are very important, but I think also uh, most people do not have friends. Like all the studies are saying now, people in America are lonelier than ever before. How do you? What does that mean when you say I place a value on friendships? I keep in contact with them. We do. I do things with them. I. They are important to me and. I want them to know what I'm doing. I, ha- I have probably five, maybe six best friends that we, we do things together and we interact and we're part of each other's family and we're very close. And mm-hmm. these, these friends have been, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50-year friendships. Wow. And you have a lot of acquaintances. You have a lot of people that you meet and, you know, that you're friendly to and say hi to and sometimes remember their names. But friend, when you start talking about friend and best friend, that's uh, uh, that goes a long time. Yeah, that, that's, and I, I I value my friendship with my best friends. Mm-hmm. A little over a year ago, I guess it was, y'all were voted uh, in the top one of the top seven lodges in the United States by the federal premium, which is an incredible, incredible honor. I mean, that's that's wild to think about. I'm curious from your perspective. What makes the Stan Jones Lodge so successful? Because a lot of people are probably trying to do something similar. My guess, that's my guess, at least. Uh, people maybe who even had more money than you to begin with or whatever else it may be. Um, why is the Stan Jones Lodge one of the top seven lodges in the United States? Well, it, when I said a while ago about character, reputation you build in maybe five minutes, but character it takes 20, 25 years. This, that would be, the answer to that would be decades, decades of me running a lodge and becoming better and better and better year after year after year. And these people that come, uh, they come great distances. They, I mean, you know, you get in a vehicle in Minnesota and drive 14 hours. You get in a vehicle in Arizona or um, they come, you know, wherever, Michigan, wherever. That's a long distance to come to spend two days at my lodge and to duck hunt. And, you know, uh, to answer your question, I think that the, the, the quality that we give them when we're there, that uh, 
we make sure that when they leave, they've had the best food that they've had in a long time. We make sure that the guides give a hundred percent of trying to help them. You know, I, I kind of tell this story. I, I think, and I've seen some hunting lodges go, come and go, but you can have the nicest lodge in the world. You can have the best food. And if a group comes there one year and don't kill any ducks, they might come back one more year. Mm. But if they come a second year and don't kill any ducks, they won't come back. You can take a house trailer. You can take a house trailer in Stuttgart and have it as your duck lodge. And you have people come, and you can feed them bologna sandwich and pork and beans and scrambled eggs. If they kill a limit of ducks, they'll come back every year. Mm. It's all about how many ducks you kill at the end of the day. So the pressure's on, right, to it make is. sure you get them the it ducks? It is. It is. And after doing this, I mean, I, I'm there every night, and I talk to these people. We go over how they did. And, you know, if somebody didn't do as good today, then we're going to try to put them in a better spot tomorrow. And we get out and scout the ducks every day. And so even have drones that, that scout the ducks for us so that we don't have to actually physically go there. So we put a lot into this for them to have a great experience when we're there. And so if, if you've heard the expression, dot every I and cross every T, that's what we try to do. And I that. after 50 years, 50 years, so, and decades is what I say is probably why that, and these other six lodges that were picked are really, really awesome lodges. They really are. I'm, I'm honored just to be a part of it. And I have, I, I don't, I don't know why other than I've just put 50 years into it and they've had some people to come there and hunt. Well, I can tell you why. I mean, it, you're, <clears throat> you're taking something that you're very passionate about and something you were very good at, something you enjoyed and something yeah. you were good at, and you, you figured out a way to marry that together for the benefit of others. Find something you love to do and figure out how to get paid for it. <laughs> yeah, and that's, that's, and that's it. Because here's the thing. If you didn't love that, like, I said it earlier, your attention to detail is about as good as I've, I've seen. And you would have burned out a long time ago if you didn't truly love this. Like, to me, like, it's not just about the money for you. Like, it's way more than that. And so that's why I think you have the energy, even at 71, to be, like, continually improving. And that's the humility piece, too, because it's so easy, I think, the older we get to be like, well, this is just the way we do it, and that's the way we've yeah. always done it. And if they don't like it, they can go somewhere else. But it's like, it seems like every visitor you're learning from. Like, they're not just learning from you. You're learning from them, and then you're able to take away and be like, here's how we can make this an even better experience next time. You know, with what's happened to me with my son passing and my wife being in a car wreck and being killed instantly, you just wouldn't believe the, the fathers that come who has a son that's on drugs. Uh, I, I, I think of one in Tennessee that uh, dad gets up and goes to work mother gets up and goes to work and she knocks on the door and says son you got to get up now you know you got college here in a few minutes get up and get dressed and when she comes back in at noon she noticed that his door was still shut and usually when he left he left it open but he shot himself and and you know those kind of people those husband and wife and two boys came and and we sat up till probably two thirty three, just talking 
the people whose wife died of cancer or about to die and leaving little kids. And just last year, this husband came with his son. The wife came with them. She has cancer, and this would be the last hunt she will ever go on with them. So for me to sit there and talk to them and to, uh, with the ups and downs that I've had, uh, it's not just about hunting. Mm -hmm. It's way more, way more than just hunting. Yeah. It's marrying together the passion, you know, what you enjoy, what you're good at, but again, doing it for the benefit of other people, and that's a life well lived. And I, I live in, a, I have to say, I live in a great area. I'm in between Black River and Cash River. It's really a good flyway, and we have a lot of ducks. We really, uh, it, it's certainly not me, it, and certainly not the lodge. We live, in my land's in a good area, and we're just in, in the flyway that's real important. Yeah. Before, I have one real quick question, and th this is real important to me. Um are, are those members of the Delta Force or SEAL Team 6 any better hunters? That's that's my question. Are they any better than the rest? I'll be glad to answer that. You know, most of them have never shot a shotgun, and oh. that's why we have that shooting range out so back. So basically I could be Delta Force because I've never shot a yeah. shotgun either. You, yeah, but, uh. but they are so highly trained. The government has spent millions of dollars on each one of them. There's only 16 members. Mm millions of dollars on each one of them and the only time that they tell me that they ever sh most of them really all of them that's been to my lodge is the only time they ever shot a shotgun was when they went through buds training which is to become a navy seal or to become a green beret that sometimes they'll take a shotgun and shoot down a door and then go on in but no they've never but just like they've shot so many guns, and they understand like a, the concept of a quarterback and split receiver. If the split receiver is running across, you got to lead. You got to throw it in front. Well, you got to lead a duck. And those guys would say, most of the time we shoot, they're coming right at us. We shoot them in the face. But that's not what. When we're hunting, usually they're flying to the right or to the left or coming over you. Or, or you, you got to lead and figure out it's it's not a standing still target. And so they are not, but in five minutes, in five minutes, they get it. Mm. It doesn't take very long. They no. love the pheasant hunt. We pheasant hunt every afternoon, and they usually kill a bunch of ducks, and they've never been to a hunting lodge in their life. They've mm. never been. Most of these guys been in 14, 18, 19, 20 years, and all they know is what they've been taught. And so it's like an R&R &R for them to come. And And we always, I, I've got a gun dealer, and he donates a gun to each one of them. Mm. And so that that's real highlight. Uh, I give them banded clothes. And so... Uh, that's a, I mean, I mean, like you know, fifteen, eighteen hundred dollars of banded clothes. The gun he gives them is probably a two thousand dollar gun. Oh, he wow. gives each one of them that. Wow. Max Prairie Wings from Stuttgart puts a backpack together, and he probably puts uh, fifteen hundred dollars worth of stuff in there. So when these guys leave, they know that we love them. Thank you for what you do. These guys will go and die in the morning for the United States. 
That's how much they love our country is we will go where you tell us to go with no questions asked. And they're very patriotic, and it's the highlight of my year to have SEAL Team 6 or Delta Force. And I, I can't do enough to say That's thank awesome. you for what, what you do. Mm. Thanks. I love our country, and they yeah, love our clear. country. And uh, uh, it, it's just an honor for me to be able to show them a little duck hunt and a little pheasant hunt and, and give them some good food. And I'll get some entertainer to come, a guy, musician or something, and, or a woman, just someone to sing and do entertainment. And so when they leave with all this, they know that we hugely, hugely care about them. Oh, I bet. And I ended up, I ended up keeping in contact and – you know, we communicate pretty That's often. Awesome. Mm-hmm. awesome. Well, there's so much more we could talk about, but um, <clears throat> excuse me. I'd love for us to end with some rapid-fire questions. You ready? I'm ready. I know you are ready. Speaking your language here, what is either the last show, or if you don't watch shows, what is the last movie that you watched, or what's the last book that you read? My daughter told me, said, Dad, you're like the guy on Yellowstone. And, and uh-huh. she said, you're a hard, hard person and you're like him and i'd never seen yellowstone in the past uh couple of weeks i've seen eight or ten yeah. of those episodes yeah. and and so i guess i'd have to say yellowstone yeah. you do remind me of him right on yeah uh or um what's your guy from tombstone sam elliott oh sam elliott it's yeah. also in 1883 buddy yeah good show good show mm-hmm. uh what is your favorite band I know you spoke about Hank Williams earlier. Yeah, uh, the Eagles. I've seen. Oh! I've seen them probably six or seven times. Come on! I've got concert. to listen to the Eagles. They make more appearances on this show than. than yeah, you do. I tell you what, man. <laughs> anybody who like it seems like the Eagles have come up at least I think four times this yeah, year. At least. Well, I like Fleetwood Mac, the Rolling Stones. You, you know those kind of okay. deals, but no one's mentioned Fleetwood Mac, but that's a good one. Okay. I'm writing these down. Eagles would be, would be my favorite band. What's, so look, I asked this to Corey Jackson. He's a guy that was on The Voice, a uh, country musician. He said he's an Eagles fan. I said, give me an Eagles song that's going to make me like them because I've never really liked the Eagles. He told me a song. It was decent. But still, I still wasn't like totally impressed. What is an Eagles song that you would encourage me to go listen to if you're like, this is a good taste of the Eagles right here? What re- What song really gets you? I, I'll, I like, they've probably got 20 or 30 number one hits, but Hotel California is, they just real quickly, they were just a California band until Joe Walsh joined their band. Joe Walsh was the lead of two different bands, and when he joined the Eagles, he took them international. He put the rock and roll into the Eagles, and... Uh, all, all of them are very talented. Glenn Fry, I mean, he, he just recently died, but I know a lot of history about the Eagles, and all of them could have been great in their own. And you put five or six great people like that together that each individually could have been like a Mick Jagger. Mm. They're, they were awesome band. Wow. Yeah, definitely one of the greats, at least considered to be. What is your favorite meal? No question about it. Hamburger steak with uh, cornbread and gravy and mashed potatoes. Come on. And white soup beans. Give me a little fist bump right here. here. (laughs) With that championship ring, easy with that thing. Uh, That is, my wife can vouch for that. 
or vouch for this. My favorite meal. I let me take. It's a, it's actually a tie between that and gumbo. Gumbo oh. she makes for me every year for my birthday. But we probably have. I just say Salisbury steaks, what I call it, with the brown gravy, the mashed potatoes, all that every single week. At least oh. once a week. Sauteed onions and oh, mushrooms. Yeah. Oh yeah, there it is. Come on, some good stuff. Um, what is on your nightstand right now? Uh, a lamp, um, pencil and a piece of paper. Um, I have a gun. Um, I think that's it. Maybe a flashlight. Okay. Great. That's exactly what I'd expect to be on your nightstand. Um, give us a snapshot of an ordinary moment in your life right now that brings you great joy. Just an ordinary moment. Being able to help somebody. I, I Every day, that's that's what I'm doing here. You asked me to come, and I came. Yep. Not that it'll help you, but I, I, the greatest part of my day is when I could stop on the highway and help somebody fix a flat or when I can buy some little kid wanting something and the dad saying, no, we don't have the money to do that. And I give a $5 so that they can buy a Coke and a candy bar or something. Just to, just the simplest thing or the hardest thing that I can do. My greatest joy every day is when I get a chance, an opportunity to help somebody. Awesome. This is the last question, and we'll let you go. What is one thing that you're deeply grateful for right now? The good upbringing from my mother and dad, just the simple things that they taught me. My mother was a hard worker. She was a very hard worker, and she took us to the cotton fields, and we either we picked and worked or we got, got a cotton stalk. I mean, she, you, my mom is all about work every day. And my dad was right or wrong, good or bad, you can do this, you can't do this. And just being able to draw lines in your life. So I'm most thankful for my mom and dad and, and, and going to church and uh, getting an opportunity to be saved and know Jesus Christ. So that's all come from my mom and dad. Awesome. Stan, thank you so much for driving in. Paragold, really appreciate you spending time with us. I hope that our uh, paths cross again in the near future. Hopefully so. Thank you, guys. Thanks. Thanks so much uh, for tuning in. If you've not already done so, please check us out on our different social media platforms. We're on Instagram. We are on Facebook. Um, if you've not done this, please go to iTunes. Give us a five-star rating. Um, that helps people to find us more quickly and just learn about the amazing people who are living right here in Paragold. So as always, again, thanks so much for listening. Until next time.